Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, could it be the media got it wrong on DNA? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to DNA specialist Kitty Cooper about a recent broadcast on PBS that has kind of upset the genealogy world. Plus, Dan Debenham is back on the show, the host of BYU TV's Relative Race. Season 6 has just concluded, and what a season it was. We'll get the full review. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by Family Search.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this episode is brought to you by BYU TV's Relative Race. And speaking of which, uh, later on in the show today, we're going to be talking to the host of the show, Dan Debenham, because the show has wrapped up. The final episode of Season 6 aired this past week. And we're going to tell you more about that. And, of course, what's ahead for Relative Race. It's going to be terrific. Plus, we got a great guest, Kitty Cooper, on the show later on today. She's kind of upset about what happened on PBS, a story about genetic genealogy. And she'll share her beef and really the beefs of a lot of people in the genealogy world over what was on that show and what was represented. And later on, we're going to talk to Rich Valencia. He's a professional genealogist who has a warning for all of us who are interested in obtaining our ancestors' immigrant records. Yeah, they're talking about raising the price of obtaining these to somewhere in the range of $600 You're going to want to hear this whole story and what you can do about it because it isn't set yet. But right now, let's check in with David Allen Lambert. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Suffering from a little post-turkey uh, oh. overstuffing. Yeah, <laughs> I think we all do that. And, of course, then the leftovers as well. But those are pretty good. Oh. I tend to like leftovers often better than the original, you know? What's your favorite type of pie? <laughs> Anything that involves coconut. There you go. Well, mine's mincemeat. That's my weakness. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope you had a great one. It was fun to talk to our kids about our Mayflower ancestry through John Howland. Oh. What? What, are you okay? Well, you know, you had to rub that in again because I don't have one. Yeah. Yes, uh, being in Massachusetts, I don't have a Mayflower ancestor. Yes, I have to admit that. My family waited nine years till they cut down the trees and mm-hmm. killed off whatever pestilence that they were trying to get rid of, drain the swamps. I, I think your ancestors were smart. They waited till ours did all the hard work. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's get on with our family east to our news. David, what do you have? Wall Street Journal did a great article on ExtremeGenes.com, which talks just about that sharing the stories during the holidays. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I like to share is my earliest memory. And it doesn't happen to be, you know, of a particular person, just in general. And for me, I was just about two years old and I had eye surgery. And I remember it like it was yesterday. The room was cold, the masks on the doctor being in a crib, because it was so traumatic. It's stuck in my head, and it's funny to see what other family members, what their earliest memory is. Yeah, 
That's so weird you say that. That is my earliest memory, too. I was two years old. I was born with a lazy eye, and they straightened it mm-hmm. out, and it was so traumatic. And I remember the, the docs with the masks around me waking me up in the middle of the yeah. night or from a nap or something, and that is so weird. <laughs> well, you always said I'm a brother from another mother. You are. You are that, <laughs> my friend. We have all the same interests, and now we have that in common as well, the same first memory. You know, the other thing that I like to do every so often is I toss a baseball around. It's kind of like from the movie Field of Dreams where he want to play a catch dad. Well, I've got a baseball I found that was from about 27 years ago when I went out cross-country with my mother-in-law, who's now passed. And we went to just a sandlot in Phoenix and tossed the ball around and hit the baseball with a, an old bat. And then I got my teenage sister-in-laws, who are now all in their 40s, to autograph it, and I had my mother-in-law sign it. And I cherish it because, well, my mother-in-law is gone, and those girls are all grown up. And, and what year was this? 1992. Wow. That, yeah, that makes for a nice little souvenir of a family get-together at that time, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I can tell you that I have Irish ancestors, but I didn't think they cohabitated with Italians so much. But there's an entire group launching now to find the Italians in Ireland. Yeah. In fact, they have connections that go back to the 1500s. Yeah, it's amazing. And the Italians apparently have had a major impact on the culture of Ireland. So now they're starting this project to explore those families and make a note of what their contributions were so everybody knows. Yeah, and in fact, their public transportation system in the 1800s was set up by an Italian by the name of Charles Biancani and their National Gallery's chief conservator, was Sergio Benetti. And so these are some <laughs> great people that from the history of Ireland that have original Italian connections. And I would have thought it was the Roman invaders. Right. But, you know, sometimes we find these stories that we accidentally find out about relatives in. There's a story on ExtremeGenes.com, which I love, by Charles Fox, where he talks about accidentally finding a picture while doing research on a book on the Carlisle Indian School. He found a picture of his granduncle, and he never knew. He worked 30 years helping members of the Carlisle Indian School with Indians that had problems with eyes. He was a doctor and actually wrote a book called Disease of the Eye, and he worked with the Blackfeet Indian. It's a great story. you got to see it's on ExtremeGenes.com. Absolutely. All right, David. Thank you so much. Good stuff. Hey, onward towards Christmas, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good, my friend. All right. DNA is it seems to be at the top of everybody's conversation these days, and not the least of which recently was PBS. And that's caused a little bit of a, a hornet's nest, I'd say. And that's why I had to get my friend Kitty Cooper on the phone. She's a DNA specialist based in uh, California. She's a blogger. Go to blog.kittycooper.com. Hi, Kitty. How are you? Hey, Scott. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you were pretty hot about this. So let's let's get into this. I was really upset. Yeah, Yeah, I I think a lot of people were. So let's just map out exactly what took place, what was said and what the realities are. Well, they did have a point of fact wrong, saying that someone was behind bars who wasn't, but they corrected that. But it was the tone. And what about this headline on their website? Genetic genealogy can help solve cold cases. It can also accuse the wrong person. Now, if that doesn't scare people, what does? Yeah. No, it doesn't accuse the wrong person. In fact, the other side of it could very well be that it helps clear people who are falsely accused. Exactly, and it has done that a number of times. But there was one case 
five years ago using Y-DNA, which is the totally wrong thing to use because, you know, my cousin Dick matches his sixth cousin exactly on the Y. (laughs) Y can tell you if you are descended from the same man long ago, but it sure cannot identify a single individual. Now, when did this happen? I've never heard this case. And this was a while back. A long time ago, in fact, I put a link to it in my article where I yelled at uh, PBS. Um, <laughs> I was just so upset. I, I love PBS. I watch the news hour every night. Sure. And I've come to expect a level of reporting I don't get from, you know, the mainstream news, like more in depth. They give me a summary of the day's events, but then they go in depth on things that interest me. But for them to be so incorrect about a topic on which I'm extremely knowledgeable like sort of threw me because it made me wonder how incorrect some of that other reporting was. Sure, absolutely. Um, And, you know, we see that on all the media these days. I take an awful lot of stuff with a grain of salt anymore when somebody says, did you hear this? I'm going, well, my cousin used to have a great expression, interesting if true. Well, I like that, interesting if true. Well, I understand that newspapers are going out of business and the media needs to sell. And in order to sell, you have to have sensational headlines. But when the headline is that misleading, I mean, I was real. The, the case was a guy named Michael Usry, whose why matched the why of a criminal. And so they took him in, they grilled him. You know, this was early, <laughs> early days. I mean, it was a good five years ago. And when PBS interviewed him, even he said, you know, I think it's a good thing if my DNA can catch a violent criminal. Yeah. Honestly, my feeling is it's our duty as citizens to put our DNA on a public database where law enforcement can out our third, fourth, or fifth cousins who have committed a crime. I mean, if one of my cousins has murdered or raped somebody, I would be delighted if my DNA helped. Yeah, I feel the same. In fact, you know, I mean, seriously, let's just say one of our kids murdered somebody. You know, wouldn't you would you want to would you want to help hide that? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'd want to get him help. Yeah. I mean, mind you, I'm sure my son never would murder somebody. But hey, you know. Right. But I mean, the point is, is who really thinks that way that, wow, I I don't know that I want to be part of helping turn some of my relatives into the police. It's like, well, now, wait a minute. That you mean you'd prefer that that person is out there committing more crimes? Exactly. I think it's the problem between preserving personal privacy and being a good citizen. And these days with the Internet and the lack of personal privacy, people you know, are really fussed about anything that they perceive as putting them out there. Yes. And that's the only thing I can think of. You know, we've been so drilled to protect our Social Security number and what else and to be suspicious of the online world. But I honestly don't understand the genealogists who are upset about all this. But then that's my point of view. I just think, you know, as a good citizen, anyone who's done a DNA test, you should upload to GEDmatch. And opt in. Uh, and then click the little thing that says, yes, law enforcement can look at my DNA. Right. And well, then I, I think mean, to a certain extent, that's what a lot of people were looking for. Just say, well, allow them to opt in. You know, and in the past, that wasn't the case. Everybody was automatically opted in unless you opted out. And I think that's what a lot of people were upset about. And I understand that because, you know, I think we all want that more and more to opt in as as opposed to having it automatically done. But then what about all the people who are dead and, you know, their DNA is there, but the police can't use it? 
Yeah. Um, one time I, I was trying to contact somebody with a beautiful tree who was a match to an adoptee I was working on. And finally, I, I Googled their name and location and discovered they died the previous year. Mm-hmm. And so you can't and get access to sad. their info. Yeah. Yeah, that's you really know, true. Well, I was able to put the, this fellow in touch with the widow and the son, and I think things progressed nicely from there, but they didn't have to. It's a sad thing, but frankly, many of us don't get interested in genealogy until we're old because it seems to be something that we want to preserve our heritage for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and collect that information before the stories are forgotten. And that's how we got into DNA. Yep. So to now discover our DNA is being used to out criminals, I can understand the initial shock, but this is a good thing. We don't want those people running around. So... Let me ask you this. I mean, it never really uh, crossed my mind until you brought it up. Do you think we will reach a point where kind of the wave of DNA testing is passed and we have more people dying who have their tests up there that you can't reach out to anymore than are coming into the system? It's a possibility. Many of us have, you know, designated someone in our family who would take over when we're gone. My nephew has all my passwords, just in case. Mm-hmm. And I also have the daughter of a cousin who's very interested in all this. And I try to, you know, share with as many younger family members as I can get interested. But I know that, you know, they have lives to build, children to raise. This isn't the first thing on their list. Yeah, that's right. It's um, not everybody's interest at all times in everybody's lives, if at all. But if people haven't put something in their will or taken care of it, Yeah, you know, maybe half the people at JedMetch are already gone and no one is even looking at their DNA anymore. Right. Uh, Could someday there be more dead people with DNA tested than living people? No, I don't think so. I mean, it depends. If the media has created this hysteria where people are afraid to test, then sure it could happen. But I'd really hope that there are some media outlets who will do the happy thing, who will show the happy cases. I have third cousins in South Africa I did not know existed. Mm -hmm. I thought that branch of the family had died out. But one of them DNA tested at 23andMe, and I looked at the surnames, and I said, that's not possible. (laughs) And I contacted (laughs) her, and we figured it out. I blogged about it. It was just amazing. She actually lives in Seattle, but I have two others who live in South Africa. And it was just such an education to learn what had happened to that branch of the family that that I thought had no survivors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. Basically, a daughter had run off with somebody and been, uh, you know, eliminated from the Ah, family. ah. Been disowned, and I didn't know about her. I knew about everybody else. So it was really fascinating. Or then there are cases of people like Laura Diamond found cousins she thought had died in the Holocaust. I mean, it's such a reunifying thing. Yeah, And I've found pictures now of my great-great-grandparents I wouldn't have if I wasn't in touch with those cousins who did DNA. I mean, it's just a remarkable unifier. Of course, the downside and the thing that the company, the media has sensationalized is when you find out daddy's not your daddy. Yes. And, and that is and a harsh thing. And you know what? The, the bottom line is is this. I mean, I recently got an email from a listener who was very upset that I was pushing people to share their DNA in multiple sites. And he says, all I hear are these terrible things and families ripped apart and they learn about this. Well, those are the really unusual stories, you know, where exactly. the those, families I mean, are ripped I have apart. far more stories of reunification. Yes. Of, you know, family branches who moved out west and lost track. I mean... 
But the media does sensationalize. That's how they stay alive. Well, those are interesting stories and they're heart wrenching stories. And, And like I said to him, you know, if I were one of those people who got an unusual test result, I I wouldn't much care that five or 10 or 15 or 20 other people had a marvelous test result because, you know, it's devastating to me. But, you know, we do have to look at it in the balance and the balance isn't even close. I mean, the the positive stuff far outweighs the negative. And I think more than anything, it's just a matter of making people understand that surprises mean you're not expecting it. And that can mean anybody can get a surprise result and you have to be prepared for the possibility if you're going to test. Exactly. And so one thing I did learn from all that sensationalism is to ask my relatives before I ask them to test to let them know that it could turn up skeletons in the closet or, you know, if they had any suspicions. So don't test if you don't want to know. Yeah. so they didn't. Some of them, most of them have tested because, hey, they're my cousins and look at all the access to expert knowledge that they have. And I have to give a shout out back to PBS because, in fact, the producer of the show that I lambasted on my blog got in touch with me. Really? And Yeah, really. He, he, he wrote a comment on my blog and we've been exchanging emails and I tried to point out some of the positive stories on my blog. And, you know, it's... <sighs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. He's going with the media, but he seemed genuine and nice, and I was impressed. I was really impressed that PBS responded. Interesting stuff. Kitty Cooper, she's the uh, DNA blogger. Go to blog.kittycooper.com. Thanks for your input on this and an interesting story. And, hey, that's why we do these things on Extreme Genes, to explore what's going on in our world. You're welcome. I really enjoy it. Thanks so much, Kitty. Great stuff. You're welcome. Well, we have just wrapped up another season of BYU TV's Relative Race. And uh, I got to tell you, Dan Debenham, the host, is on the line with me right now. And Dan, you guys owe me big time because I'll tell you what, we went through more boxes of Kleenex this season than any other season I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, but the good news is if you actually hold stock in the Kleenex company, your stock was going through the roof. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I should have thought of that even before the season started, right? This would be the time to invest. Very nice. I'll tell you what, what a season it has been, and uh, congratulations to Team Green on their big win. But the bottom line here is the bonding of these teams, how much they were pulling for each other in a competition for $50,000, which is life-changing money in many ways, right? I mean, you can invest that, you can grow that, you can travel on it, you can get out of debt with that. They were still all pulling for each other. I noticed that each of them had wristbands on for all the teams. It was amazing. It's been unique to see how the, the show has morphed into that kind of camaraderie over the past probably three seasons, kind of starting with season four. We saw a little of it. More of it in season five, and then this season, it just organically happened. You know, people have asked me about that. You're not alone, Scott, in in asking about that. And I, I don't know where that came from other than this show is so unique in that it has this incredible competition taking place for $50,000. But the teams realize either early on or at some point through the race that they're all in the same boat. Yeah. They all are desperately looking to find family, and they're open and they're real and they're raw about that and their feelings for their quote-unquote competitors 
when they do find their family. And so in those video conference calls at the end of you know every episode, to your point, I couldn't believe it myself. These teams were crying for each other, rooting for each other, and showing support in so many ways. And then the beauty of the show, the dichotomy of this show, is that then the next day when the race is on, they're back to serious competition. But then by the end of the night, they're back to pulling for each other. Yeah. It's just this wonderful ride that only relative race gives you. Well, and I'm thinking that perhaps the reason for this season is the fact that this is the first time that somebody on every team was looking for a birth parent. So they're all in yeah. the same boat. Uh, obviously, some have been more impacted by that hole in their lives than others. Raymond told me from Team Red, by the way, he just felt that God had brought all these teams together because he was just talking about the love they shared, that they'd recently gotten together on their own in Atlanta just to be with each other, having gone through this amazing life-changing experience. I mean, that really speaks to the power not only of what you're doing. I mean, obviously, it's a commercial venture, but at the same time, It's a life-changing thing. It's a show with a great purpose and really demonstrates the importance of these family connections that we're all trying to do through our family history research, through DNA, and just connecting. Yeah, well said, well put. And, you know, Raymond has written me several times since we shot the show and just so eloquently, so sincerely said very kind things about the work that we do here at, at Lensworks and the work that he feels that I do personally. And it's really humbling. It's humbling when you get a letter or a note from these past participants. I don't, I don't know how to describe it, Scott. It's, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I have never been involved with something that is so gratifying on every level. Because it really, truly affects and changes people's lives yep. forever for the better. And Raymond, I think it's simple to say, and he'd be the first to admit it, was probably the most impacted of all the participants in the show by not knowing who his parents were, by having this story in his mind that his parents gave him up but kept this brother. And he's at so much peace now over that whole thing now that he's met his brother and all these other family members, and he talks to his brother like every day or two and his kids oh, yeah. have bonded with his brother's kids and he just says his whole life is completely different he says he just can't wait for the second half of his life now and that anger that he spoke of in the show is just not there anymore well you know scott i i think you and your listeners will be interested to know that we have been commissioned and are just wrapping up the production of 16 of the past teams from season one all the way through season six, we have picked 16 teams and gone back and visited them to do a series of where are they now since their time on the show. Wow. And Raymond was one of them, so he speaks to that. But going all the way back to season one, we talk with Doug and Margo, and there's teams from every season talking about how this show has forever changed their lives And often when it's been married couples on the show, how it changed and strengthened their marriages. There's just this this one, these wonderful conversations that are updates since they were on the show. And we think the viewers are going to love it. We hope your listeners are excited about that. But there are stories that they tell us of what's happened since the show. And there's a lot of laughter as as they go back and, and talk about their memories 
of the show. What was their best moment? What was their worst moment? Their worst moments are hilarious, you know. So, uh, <laughs> well, the it, thing it's, is, it's, it's fun. The bottom line, Dan, is the show is healing. Family history is healing. Connections yeah. is healing. And we're talking about serious healing in many cases because I, I know personally I've worked with individuals who weren't able to sleep at night because they didn't know who their birth father was. And they, they, we're talking people in their late 50s. And uh, the, then when we figured out who it was, and even though the story of uh, this, this person's origins wasn't that pretty, it, it didn't matter. He at least knew. And suddenly he was able to sleep for the first time in decades and move on with his yeah. life. And, and, and that wasn't always occupying him. Every time something else, some other problem arose in his life, it didn't default to that question, you know? It's fascinating how much we need that. And for those of us who have never experienced the absence of a parent or a question about our origins, it might be difficult to understand. But I think this show does an amazing job of explaining that. Well, you know, we appreciate that, Scott. We hope that's the case. And and I think that sometimes you, you bring up something interesting that came to mind. I think that something we could do better on the show is for those who are on the show who have had incredible supportive, and that's not everybody on the show, right? but many on the show do have incredible, supportive, loving, adoptive families. And yet, still, in spite of that love and support, to your point, there's still, for all of them, a need, some more than others, a need, a desperate need to know where do I ultimately belong when it comes to all of the things that you said, my origins, my blood, meaning I love my family. My adoptive parents will forever be my parents. They'll be my mom and dad. Yeah, it doesn't take away from them. Ever, it no, just adds no, to them. They get another family. It adds to. Wait till you see the update on Chris and Deshay. Wait till you see Chris and Deshay, Team Green, from this season. Wait till you see the update just from the past few months since we shot the episode. Deshay, as you know, found both her mother and her father. Yeah. Wait till you see what has happened there, including her adoptive mom and how that family has come together to love and support and be with one another. It's awesome to see. Till next time, my friend. Great season, great work, strong work. Thanks to uh, your team as well. I'm sure they must love coming to work each day when you get to do something like this. Life-altering. It's BYU TV's Relative Race. You can stream it on BYUtv.org or by using the BYU TV app. It's all available for you right now. You can go to RelativeRace.com as well. It'll get you there. Thanks, Danny. We'll talk to you soon. See you, my friend. Bye-bye. And I'm uh, very excited to be talking today to Rich Venezia. He is with Rich Roots Genealogists and involved with a group called Records Not Revenue. He's based out of Pittsburgh. And uh, Rich, it's great to have you on the show. And this is an interesting time, I guess, with our government trying to get some revenue for records. What are we talking about specifically? Yes, indeed. Thanks so much for having me on the show. We really appreciate it on behalf of uh, all of us involved in this effort. So mainly what we're talking about are records related to 20th century immigrants. The USCIS genealogy program, that's the genealogy program of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, holds five specific record sets that relate mainly to folks who immigrated in the late 19th century and the early to mid 20th century. There's a bunch of different records 
five different record sets in all, and they encompass most people who arrived or naturalized or registered as an alien during that time frame. They're really valuable records. There's almost about 20 million different records they have in all, and the USCIS genealogy program is the one who holds the keys to be able for researchers like you and me to be able to access these records. Right. They've been accessible for a long, long time. Obviously, we're dealing with people who are uh, overwhelmingly deceased at this point. There are probably very few living people that are involved in these record sets. How long have they been available, Rich? Do you know? Yeah, so before 2008, these records were available through FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. And then in 2008, they decided to create this genealogy program with the idea being that these records would be more readily available, they'd be more efficiently able to be dispatched to researchers because the FOIA department of USCIS was so overwhelmed with requests, and that FOIA backlog really has only grown in the last decade. So starting in 2008, they started this program. It was a fee-for-service. It was $20 to search the index, $20 or $35 to get a copy of the record, depending upon whether the record was on microfilm or a paper copy. And then they changed those fees in 2016, almost tripling them, in fact, for most of those, uh, $65 for an index search and then $65 to get a copy of the record. Wow. So quite a bit more expensive in 2016, but still somewhat feasible if you have a good idea of the types of treasures that these records can hold. Sure, and what you're looking for, and you're not going to waste a lot of time and money just taking shots in the dark. Well, let's look at this one. Let's look Indeed, at that one. Indeed, exactly. Yeah. 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 So now they're talking about, I mean, I can't believe the numbers you're telling me here, <laughs> what they yeah. want to charge this time around with their rate increase, $600. Indeed, yes. Yeah. So what they're proposing, and it's important to know that as of right now, this is just a proposed rule, but what they're proposing <laughs> is making it $240 to search the index. If the record already happens to be digitized, which meant it was on microfilm at one point, they've since digitized it. That relates to about two of these five record sets. They'll also send you a copy of that record. So if it's already digitized, your 240 will get you a copy of that record. But it's digitized. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> well, uh, hey, Come look, on. look, I'm just telling you what I know. Oh, my gosh. And, and then if it's a paper file, it'll cost another $385, so a $625 total cost to search the index and then to receive a copy of a paper record. Oh my gosh! I mean, f- yeah, it's wait a minute now. Incredible. But aren't these aren't public records? So they're not quite public records. Um, they are on their way. Most of them are scheduled to be transferred to the National Archives at a certain point. In fact, two of the five of these record sets have, in fact, uh, their record schedule has specified they can be transferred to the National Archives. They are uh, available for transfer. But as far as we know. There's no plans in place by either the National Archives to receive them or USCIS to transfer them to the National Archives. So you're saying many of these records are going to wind up in the public record domain here soon enough. What is the cutoff on the years and all that for that? Well, so two of these record sets are eligible for transfer currently. We aren't sure why they haven't been transferred, and that's one of the things that's so troubling to us is that they're proposing to charge over $600 for records that you know, should be or should be on the way to being freely publicly accessible. One of the record sets doesn't transfer until 2056 because it's 100 years after the end of the series. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other two are, one of them is on a rolling basis, uh, 100 years after the date of birth of the subject. And the other one is kind of TBD. I'm not 100% sure on when it is supposed to be transferred. 
But we do know there's a copy at the National Archives, but USCIS has a restriction on it. So we're hopeful that maybe if enough of our voices can get heard, one of the things they might consider doing is lifting that restriction on the record that's already at the National Archives, but just currently unavailable for research. That makes sense. That makes sense. So what do we do if people are concerned and want to make their voices heard on this whole matter? Who do they reach out to? How's it done? So because this is a proposed rule, it's a governmental agency proposing that they're changing their fee schedules, what we can do is we can submit public comments. And this is mostly done online through the federal e-rulemaking portal. You can find all of the information about how to access that portal on our website, which is recordsnotrevenue.com. But basically, it's really easy. If you are upset about this or you've used these records in the past or you might want to use them in the future, you can draft a comment. You can submit it through the rulemaking portal. And USCIS is actually required by law to read, review, and consider all of the public comments that they receive. So we have until December 16th, for as many of us as possible, to submit our public comments in opposition to this rule about this outrageous fee hike to access records of our immigrant ancestors. Wow, and it's coming right up here in uh, just, just, just days, really. So it's really important you get on that. So you go to recordsnotrevenue.com, and you can find the portal for that. You know, I guess the question is also, if, what if it's like my grandfather, right? I mean, why would I want to pay 600-some-odd dollars for my grandfather's own records from that period? I mean, it's just the whole thing really is upsetting. Indeed. Yeah. And I think that one of the, you know, one of the things that's most important to remember, too, is in addition to our immigrant ancestors' records, these are America's records, right? These tell the story of America's very proud immigrant heritage and, you know, making them inaccessible. And, you know, it upsets me as, as a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth generation American, right? As a hyphenated American, I want to tell as many immigrant stories as I can. That's what I do in, in all of my genealogical research. And so making these records inaccessible to most everyday Americans means that these stories will get told less and less and less till they wind up transferring to the National Archives, which in some cases won't be for several decades. He's Rich Venezia. Rich, thank you so much for telling us about this. Thank and you. I'm sure a lot of people will get on this, and hopefully we can rescue it to some degree, right? Here's hoping. Thanks so much. And again, the website is recordsnotrevenue.com. Thanks so much, Rich. It just leaves you scratching your head as to who would pay over $600 to have an index researched and a set of records sent to you. Are you kidding me? Hey, that's our show for this week. We thank you, as always, for joining us. We will talk to you again next week with the survivor of Pearl Harbor. Talk to you then. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.